Welcome to episode 89 of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. As always, I am coming to you from the Gulf Coast of Pensacola, Florida. Coming up on today's show, you'll be hearing my conversation with location sound mixer, Mr. Steve Baker. And I met Steve several months ago through Facebook. He had reached out to me and said, hey, if you're ever looking for anyone to discuss audio or if you want to just hear road stories from someone who's been in the business for over 20 years, just let me know. And I said, sure, I'd love to have you on the podcast. And we had an absolutely unbelievable conversation. We talk about things from college, the pros and cons of working freelance to having a full-time job, how he got into the business, so many great things. We talked for close to two hours, so I had to split the interview into two parts. Part one you'll be hearing today, part two will air next week. But as far as what you'll hear in part one, uh, you'll learn how Steve is a lifelong musician. Uh, He was in the Coast Guard for a period of time. He went to Full Sail University way before it became anything close to what it is now. Working freelance in Massachusetts, he did an unbelievable video. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but the way he describes it is pretty awesome about the process of moving a lighthouse from one location to another. And it's a really cool story of how he and his crew documented this whole thing. And to conclude this episode, you'll be hearing a story about a client and friend of his named Jay Blake, who is a racing crew chief. But there's a very unique quality about him, but I'm not going to reveal that quality in this open. You'll have to uh, you'll have to listen to the entire interview to find that out. But before we get to Steve Baker, I have a quick question for you. Are you looking for new original music? If so, you should check out Atomics, the brand new EP from my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, featuring the vocals of Joey Trincali. It has three brand new tracks, including their single Tomorrow's Plan, which happens to be the theme song of this very podcast. This EP is unlike anything the Unicorn Wranglers have done before. So support local music and check out Atomics, which is available now on iTunes and Spotify for only $2.97. That's $2.97, people. That's cheaper than a meal at Taco Bell. You can't beat that. So go on iTunes, go on Spotify, and get Atomics. Don't forget, you can also follow the Unicorn Wranglers on social media. Like them on Facebook. Just search for, you guessed it, the Unicorn Wranglers. You can also follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Wranglers. And finally, don't forget to visit their website, theunicornwranglers.com. Sitting here with my special guest this week, Location sound mixer, Mr. Steve Baker. Steve, how you doing? I'm great, Derek. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, no problem at all. I mean, we I reached out to you, or actually you reached out to me first uh, months ago saying, you know, if you need somebody on the podcast, then to, to let me know. And, uh, and I did, and we were talking on the phone, and you actually got like a really interesting story. And uh, even through that conversation, I was like, this is going to be... This is going to be a fun conversation because I, I, film and production work is, you know, what I love to do ultimately. And I know you do freelance work. Correct? Yes, sir. And yeah. I, I've been doing that too. I've been filming weddings for cool. three years. So, uh, what exactly is a location sound mixer? I mean, we were talking a little bit about that uh, before we started. So, a location sound mixer is the guy who pretty much makes sure that you get 
good, clean audio on location to either your camera or, in a lot of cases, a separate recorder for your television program or your reality show or what, whatever it is that you're doing. Now, is, uh, is that what you ultimately wanted to do was work, uh, work in freelance? Well, my story is uh, a long and sordid story when it comes to production. Um, I started out way back in the Stone Ages. Um, I have been a musician and a songwriter my whole life. I uh, published uh, uh, way back when with some really janky little uh, record company in England called Nervous Records and Tape, some funky little punk song that I wrote. Um, and I have spent a lot of time in recording studios, and I just uh, just spent a lot of time recording my own songs. Um, I bought myself a little Tascam um, 4644 uh, recorder, or 422 recorder, I think it was a four-track uh, recorder, and used it to record demo reels, and I recorded a lot with friends of mine. Um, this was back, back in... M- when I had my first job, I was in the Coast Guard. And so writing songs in the Coast Guard, raising a family, spending all my free time in recording studios, recording with friends. And I said, wow, this could be a pretty cool job. Uh, now you mentioned in recording, uh, recording music. Is that something that like when you were a kid that you wanted to do? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this on the way over. And um, I, if I really had to go back to the origins of me getting into this business, when I was in high school, uh, I was part of a radio program at Lompoc, California Senior High School, Lompoc Senior High School, called the Smoke Signal News Broadcast, and it was a radio show that we did once a month, and it was, uh, we didn't even have a radio station, we just basically pre-recorded this radio show um, doing a bunch of crazy stolen bits from Saturday Night Live and then, you know, reading off this month's, you know, this week's lunch and, you know, all the announcements and stuff like that. Just trying to make mundane things fun. Right. And uh, me and a bunch of buddies uh, would do this, you know, every week. And and uh, it's funny, a lot of us have, have gone on to... Uh, to work in the business, uh, our main engineer, a guy named Paul DeGray, now runs this place called Paul and Mark Mike's Recording, which is one of the preeminent um, uh, mixing mastering houses in Los Angeles. He's worked with um, all the greatest bands, you know, uh, of the day, from Black Flag to Patti Smythe, and you know, on up into a bunch of local guys uh, or uh, you know new guys now uh, another guy a guy named Howard Luck uh, ended up being a high powered executive over at uh, over at Disney oh wow and now is uh, is a big wig at the uh, Simpty organization so yeah we all just kind of got together did this little thing and you know that's where I got my first little recording but you know plus being a musician you know trying to get my my songs down on tape now, at what point did you get into the the production side of of audio? I would say um, when I uh, I got out of high school. Well, you know, when I was in high school, we were doing a lot of our own stuff, and they, you know, this was before multi track recording. We were doing, you know, a lot of uh, 
everything was recorded on a two-track recorder, so we were doing bounce-back recording. We would record stuff on one one channel, bounce it over to channel two while we were recording on channel one, and just layering stuff on top of each other. But we were we were doing it very very old school and editing everything with razor blades and and stuff like that. It was pretty cr- crazy. Frankly, I didn't do a lot of that stuff. Paul uh, DeGray did that, but but we. Uh, we really got, uh, you know, that's where I kind of got the bug. Um, then I, I, when I got into the Coast Guard and made a little bit of money and was able to start buying some gear, you know, I wanted to start recording my music because I was writing music and, you know, I was like everybody else, madly in love with girls and writing songs about them and had to get them down. Um, so I bought a uh, little four-track recorder and just started making demo reels. And, uh, you know, from there I got, I graduated to, uh, working in a, uh, in a, not, not really working, but recording some songs in a small, uh, recording studio in Dennis, Massachusetts, um, with a good friend of mine, John Todd, his, his recording studio was HT recording. It's eight, eight track recording studio amazing stuff came out of that place. You would never believe that it was only eight tracks in there. Um, we recorded a, a benefit song that was, uh, at the time, Cape Cod's We Are the World type thing, where we got all <laughs> Cape Cod musicians and children's. I think we crammed 180 um you know, children and musicians into a studio no bigger wow. than a garage and recorded this really cool uh, 45 record um, called Everybody Needs a Chance. It was a song that I wrote and and they arranged it and and we turned it into this really cool thing and, and made a boatload of money for the I March, can imagine March so. of Dimes that year. You know, selling mm-hmm. 45 and we pressed a vinyl um, and we sold the record. Um, and there's, you know, there's nothing cooler than hearing your music for the first time on the radio. I can imagine so. Yeah. 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 So, um, for, from there, uh, I know I reading the email that you sent me, uh, you did some work in, in the new England area. Now I know you earlier, you mentioned California. Are you from the West coast or are you from New England. Well, I'm I'm a little bit of a mutt. I uh, was actually born in uh, Melbourne, Florida. Okay. Uh, my dad he worked in the aerospace industry, and obviously at that time, which was right around the uh, uh, Mercury years and the early Apollo years, uh, my dad uh, was working there. So we got to be right in the heyday of all the missiles and all that stuff going off at Cape Canaveral. Um, he got transferred out to a little. Uh, place on the west coast called uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base where there a lot of the unmanned launches were going up and uh, that's where my formative years were you know I went to high school there I kind of call that home I have a brother and sister who still live live there in town and you know although I I kind of have this thing where I can't let more than two suns suns set on me while I'm in Lompoc or else I shrivel up and die. <laughs> you know, I just love the town. It's a beautiful little town. It's changed a great deal since I've been there. But um, as soon as I could get out of high school, um, I, I, I got out of town and I joined the Coast Guard and uh, ended up going to a boot camp in Alameda, California, and then right on to a ship in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. 
Um, the ship was in the yards at the time. So basically, uh, my first uh, six months, eight months of, of duty in the Coast Guard was uh, working, grinding decks on the Coast Guard from about 7 o'clock in the morning uh, to uh, oh, 1 o'clock. We were working holiday hours. And then, wow. then I would... Uh, I would uh, change into my bathing suit and go go surfing for the rest of the <laughs> afternoon, you know. And then in the evening, we'd go into Honolulu and and you know get a little hammered and and come back and do it all over again. Uh, and I hated it, you know. I mean, I loved the Coast Guard Cutter Melon was great. It was a, it was a, a fun little gig. Um, when the ship got out of the yards, we went on our first patrol, and I realized, okay, being at sea. It's probably not good for me. I spent more time being seasick than anything else, <laughs> you know. But there, I met a lot of great guys, and and we played a lot of great music out on the out on the flight deck, and and had a really really good time. That's where I learned how to play a little bit of Hawaiian slack guitar, and and uh, bought my first twelve string out there, and you know it was really really cool. Never did any recording out there. Um, went to Coast Guard Radioman School after that. That's where I met my wife, love of my life. Um, I was a baby of 19 years old at the time. She was a couple of years older than me. And when I saw her, I said, I'm, I'm going to marry that girl. And, you know, everybody laughed at me. And, you know, at the time I was playing music in the, in the hallway. And, and we, um, uh, we got, we, she got to know me. I got to know her. And, and before you know it, um, we took the express route to, to our family. First, she got pregnant, then we got married, and then we had the <laughs> baby. Um, and uh, But all the time I was writing music and trying to record it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, um, she was from New England, and she okay. really, really wanted to live back home. So I did what they call in the Coast Guard a mutual duty station transfer, where I traded duty stations with a guy who was at Woods Hole, at Coast Guard Group Woods Hole, and um, we ended up, uh, I ended up stationed out there, and uh, he moved back to Long Beach, California, and, and lo and behold, you know, um, spent the bulk of my career there um, with a, with a um, <clears throat> excuse me, a quick uh, diversion. I, I rose up in the ranks, uh, got to be a second-class radioman, um, and got transferred back to another ship in Honolulu, Hawaii, called the Jarvis. Um, ultimately got a little bit sick, uh, with a pretty nasty disease called Crohn's disease mm -hmm. and, uh, spent a lot of time at triple army medical center. Um, but then ultimately ended up in, uh, at coast guard communication station in Wahiwa, which is kind of like right in the middle of Honolulu, uh, where I met a really good friend and to this day collaborator, Tom Wagner. And we did a lot of, we did a lot of recording of, of music. We used to play music for weddings, uh, out at, uh, Waimea Falls and all over. Um, and the funny part about that, uh, is I, I played my 12 string and Tom played mandolin but we knew no Hawaiian music whatsoever. I kind of knew how to slack tune my guitar, but we had no idea what, uh, how to play any music. So, so, uh, but what we did know is we knew bluegrass. And uh, what we found out real quickly was that if you slow bluegrass music way down, just slow it way down, it sounds 
very much like traditional Hawaiian music. Oh, wow. So I imagine all these brides playing back their their wedding tapes and videos and, <laughs> and you know, speeding them up every now and then and hearing... <laughs> but, so anyway, so... Yeah, so Tom and I, uh, we recorded a lot of music at that time. Uh, Tom had a, uh, a little four-track uh, uh, reel-to-reel, and we started recording a lot of music together. Ultimately, we ended both ended up getting transferred back to New England, and I eventually got kicked out of the Coast Guard because I was not fit for duty um, because of my, my belly, because of the Crohn's disease. So Damn. they put me out on a disability retirement, and... Uh, uh, which just gave me a little bit of time and a little bit of money. And I right. bought some recording equipment and started spending time in studios, but ultimately had to get a job sooner or later. Now, do you still play music? And record music uh, you know today? what? I don't play as much as I used to, which is, uh, I was thinking about this again, too, on the way in. It's kind of sad. I don't play. I, I pick up my ukulele every now and then and pluck around on that, um, uh, play uh, my guitar a lot, uh, you know, when I'm feeling up to it. But unfortunately, one of the things about Crohn's disease is, is it really affects your joints and, you know, which makes it kind of hard to, right. hard to play. So, um, so yeah, I haven't really, uh, haven't really been playing as much, but you know, that time in the Coast Guard, or excuse me, when I got out of the Coast Guard and, uh, at this time I went and worked for, went to work for the post office. I was working for the post office for about four years and I would work during the daytime uh, as a letter sorting machine operator. They drop letters in front of you one at a time, one every second, and you punch in on a keyboard, a 20-key keyboard, you know, three numbers, and it sends it off to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, and so I'd do that for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, depending on the time of year, and then write music and, and play and and tried playing out professionally. Um, that didn't work out so well, but spent a lot of time recording studios, and and that's where I really got my love of recording. So uh, when I got out of the coast, when when things were good, I had been with the post office for five years, six years, um, and I I told my wife I can't do it anymore. And by this time, you know, we had had. Uh, two kids and I had been had my eye on this school that was all about teaching recording engineering down in Orlando Florida called Full Sail that was going to be my next question is did you go to school for for audio yeah so I I had my eye on this school I and actually been doing a lot of research at the time the internet was not so big, but I was finding finding out about recording schools, uh, and they had a couple of them. One in Ohio that looked very interesting. One in uh, in uh, in Florida, and Full Sail seemed like the place to go. So on on a, uh, a trip down south to see my brother and and my mother who lived in Oviedo, um, I went over to Winter uh, Springs, which is just around the corner from, from where Full Sail was mm -hmm. and, uh, check the place out. And it was not the huge conglomeration that it is now. It was literally one very small building. They were just, just recently expanding and, and Gary Jones and, and, uh, or yeah, Gary Jones and Gary Platt, I guess the Gary's, um, were there, 
at the school one day when I just walked in and I said, can I talk to somebody about the school? And they said, well, let, let me tell you a little bit about this video and film program we're doing. They were branching out into video and film at the time. And, and I was in the, either the first or second uh, video and film comprehensive program at Full Sail, uh, which is nothing like the degree program that they have now. It was basically a very intensive nine months of training, you know, giving you a little bit of information on all sorts of uh, all sorts of gear. Um, and, you know, I fought and fought. Uh, my wife and I talked it over. Um, I asked the VA if they could help me out. I had to fight them really hard, but finally got my tuition to, to go to school and got got some VA benefits and all that kind of stuff. And my wife, bless her heart, you know, said, let's go. And we sold the house that we owned in Massachusetts and moved to Florida where I could go to school. Um, And mind you, I had two young kids. I think they were, you know, maybe four or five at the, four and five at the time, four, five and three. Um, And uh, so I was going to school, you know, basically 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week. And my wife was holding down the fort. You know, I would typical day in school was that I would uh, uh, wake up and and be in lectures from seven o'clock to to about one or two o'clock, go home, get a quick bite to eat and three o'clock to about one or two or three o'clock in the morning. We'd be doing labs um, and I get a couple hours of sleep and do it all over again. And that went on for nine months. Yeah, people don't realize the the time that you know people in our field put in to do that type of stuff i mean that's just with training and what's cool about full sale you mentioning that it's much bigger now than it was then Uh, one of my previous interviews i did uh, was with a former comic book artist who now teaches creative writing at full sale Mm. so now they have you know creative writing i believe they have uh video game development there so there's all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, when I went when I went there, the curriculum consisted of video and film. Uh, it was video production and then uh, film production. And at the time, they were two different classes. And um, then there was a makeup class. There was a a script writing class. There was a a linear editing class where we learned on one inch tape how to edit. No, there was no nonlinear editing at that time. We also had uh, audio, they, a couple of audio uh, recording engineering classes, and we had a, um, a class on uh, uh, digital audio editing where we were learning how to do mix-to-pick stuff, sound effects and things like that for um, on the Synclavier, um, which is a digital audio workstation, kind of the pro tools of its day. No, there were no pro tools. There was no final cut. There was none of this nonlinear editing stuff back then. This was back in October of 89. Um, and so when I go back and I look at this school today, I kind of feel like I got cheated a little bit. <laughs> but I have, what I have to say about this business in particular is that school gives you a great foundation, but... Everything that I learned about this business, about my job, I on the job. On the set. I, 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 you know, nothing against full sale. Nothing, you know. I, I, I get this. I paid, 
I think think it was fifteen thousand dollars, significantly more if you count in the student loan debt. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids today are paying what eighty, ninety thousand dollars. You know, I came out with a certificate. You know, they're now coming out with a full degree. So, you know, it's a it's a much more comprehensive program. Um, I I love full sale, and I recommend it to people who, you know, are kind of who who don't want to take a traditional school route. Although I can't speak to how things are at full sale now, but what I will say, when I was going there, it was the perfect thing for me because I was thirty years old. I needed to learn a lot of information in a very short period of time so that I could get back and start working. Yeah, and that's I totally agree with that. Most everything I've learned about film production, video production has been on set or on the job. I mean, I, I tell people education is important and it is a good foundation, but you'll really learn the bulk of what you will learn or you'll use later on set. Well, I think I think one of the other things uh, that that I have noticed, and and I get a lot of calls from full sale students. Um, you know, virtually every week I get a call from a guy coming out of full sale asking me, you know, do you have a job for me? Is there anything you know you can suggest? And the only thing that I can really tell them for sure is that you shouldn't come out of that school thinking that you're going to be the next Scorsese or or Kevin Smith or something. You, you've got to start at the bottom and work your way up just like anybody else. And all too often, I hear these guys who are, who come out of schools and it's not just full sale. It's, you know, it's the film program over at Florida state and it's, you know, it's, it's UCLA film school. It's everywhere. They come out and they have that quote unquote film school attitude and they, they want every set that they're on to be, you know, like a film school set. And it just doesn't work that way in real life. So unfortunately, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, it's, it, Full Sail gave me a, a really great foundation, but, um, you know, I think if I had it to do over again, I might have taken a different route. Um, you know, I, who, who knows? All things being equal. Yeah, you know? exactly. But when I got out of Full Sail, um, I made a conscious, very conscious decision not to go to L.A., um, not to go to New York, not to to stay in Orlando, which at the time was supposed to be the new Hollywood South. Um, I I promised my wife that if she would um, let me do this, go to school, that we would come back to Massachusetts and I would figure out a way to find a job. And so my first job out of school was working as an intern um, for a production company called Boston Productions, right mm-hmm. in Kenmore Square. I could see Fenway Park from the window of where I was. Um, and we were able to get into a house that was literally a block away from where we used to live. Uh, ultimately ended up buying that, hi- that house. And my kids got to go back to the same school that they were in. And so, you know, um, my commitment to my family brought me back to Massachusetts. Um, and I was just, my dedication to my career and having to make it work is what, uh, enabled me to get a job so quickly. 
So you did find a job quickly after you moved back to Massachusetts. Well, the reality of it is, is that I worked as an intern. Read yeah, zero you're, money. You're true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for, at Boston Productions for three months, um, and that was part of my part of my requirement for school. Um, so I my income was still being supplemented by the VA, and I was able to do that. When my internship. Uh, was finished, Boston Productions offered me a job. They also had a, uh, a division, Boston Post-Production, and they offered me a job as, a, uh, as an assistant editor, basically threading up tapes for the editors and, and doing some, some small editing jobs and stuff like that. But I lived down on Cape Cod. Boston Productions was in the heart of Boston, so it was easily an hour, hour and a half commute, depending on you know, your mode of transportation. Right. And I just couldn't, couldn't justify the money that they were offering me. And then believe me, the money they offered me was, was pennies on the dollar. It just wasn't, wasn't worth it. If I was living in Boston, I might've considered it, but even then it would have been tough. I had a, I had a supplemental income because I was disability retired from the Coast Guard and had money coming in. So that helped a little bit, but I just couldn't afford to do that. The irony of it is, is that in that first year after leaving my internship at Boston Productions, I made as much or more money as a freelance assistant editor or freelance grip PA or freelance sound guy um, working for Boston Productions um, than I would have had I been a uh, been a staffer. Um, so you know, it kind of worked out, and I didn't have to work as many hours a week. Um, and I was still available to do other projects. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time I was cultivating my own production company and, and, you know, building my resume, working on other jobs, you know, working on really horrible feature films that nobody would ever see, <laughs> you know, unless you watched Cinemax late at night. You know? <laughs> now, how long did you do uh, freelance work in Massachusetts? Um... I freelanced in Massachusetts pretty much two, three years. Two, three years. Um, and it, it it became another one of those defining moments in my relationship with my wife. Um, and I got tired of traveling, and I got tired of, of wondering where the next dollar was going to come from. And, and I wasn't only freelancing in video and film production. I was also freelancing in AV. So Mm -hmm. I would work at the Heinz Convention Center or the major convention centers there doing load-ins and load-outs and and babysitting slide projectors for big corporate meetings. Um, I remember this one gig where I was a camera operator uh, for this big medical convention where they were, they had set up, literally set up an operating theater in the middle of the Heinz Convention Center, a sterile operating theater, and it was for it was for um, as I, I recall, it was for plastic surgeons. Mm-hmm. And so, in during the course of the day, I was camera operator along with two or three other guys for a rhinoplasty, um, which was basically a nose job and um, and uh, a couple of boob jobs. Um, while you know, right there in the middle of it was really kind of a cool thing. So I was doing, you know, lots of neat little jobs and I worked on a couple of, you know, feature films, uh, 
um, stuff that you've probably never heard of. Um, uh, a movie called Leaving Scars with a with the Playmate of the Year, Penthouse Pet of the Year, excuse me, Lisa Boyle. Um, and, you know, that was a very interesting, you know, six days of, of being crossover sound guy slash crip. I, I can honestly say that was my first sound credit in really in a movie was on on that movie um and funny little story about that when the when the movie premiered quote unquote they had a little get together at uh the small hotel in in boston um and uh everybody was there and we were all waiting for the star lisa to show up um well Sometime between the time we wrapped the movie and the premiere, Lisa had worked on a project with my brother Bubba, who is a uh, who is an actor. Bubba Baker is a is a character actor. You've probably seen him in a million things. He's you know he's the biker in every okay I got you. badass movie you've ever seen. Um, so Bubba and Lisa worked in this show called Daytona Beach, mm-hmm. and so. Somewhere along the line, she realized what was going on, and we're in this receiving line at the premiere, and Lisa walks in, and she bypasses everybody, and my wife and I are standing there, and she bypasses the producers and the directors and everybody, comes to me and gives me a great big old hug and says, I know you, I just worked with your brother Bubba, you're great, (laughs) and so, of course, First, I had to explain to my wife what was going on. And then second, I had to explain to the producers what was going on. And then the directors. It was a very, very uncomfortable situation. But, you know, and then Lisa spent a lot of time hanging with us. Right. You know, um, uh, was, as I recall, I'm, I'm not sure she was very excited about the movie. And nor was I. It was not the best movie. I've, I've seen it a couple of times on Cinemax late at night. But You, know. you got to start somewhere, though, right? Yeah, yeah, I do not. Taken any day. Now, from from Boston, did you move from Boston to here, or well, did, or did you travel more? No. So, um, as as I was saying, um, you know, freelancing is a hard life. You never know where your next paycheck's coming from. Um, sometimes, you know, it's really, really good, and there's lots of money, you know, and then other times. You can go two, three months without without a paycheck, mm-hmm. and uh, I was getting tired of it, and my wife was really getting tired of it, and I was being a stubborn ass and not getting a part time job like real men do, you know, to take care of their family. I was saying, no, I'm a filmmaker, I'm not gonna do this, and uh, and she pretty much laid down the ultimatum, you know, and said something's got to change here. And as it turns out, um, a small cable company on Cape Cod, about you know half an hour from where I worked, was uh, hiring a for a ad insertion technician. Basically, the guy who puts together all the local ads that are going to air on the local networks all over. Right. And it was really, really short money. If I if I had to guess, I think my paycheck was somewhere around sixteen thousand a year, if that. Um, 
but I was working full time and I had benefits and my wife was happy and, and that was most important to me. Happy wife, happy life. Mm-hmm. And I, and fortunately the job was still flexible enough that I could spend time in the recording studios doing the things that I love to do. You know, I now had access to, uh, lots of gear, um, more expensive gear. Uh, I, I should back up and say that when I first got out of school, one of the very first things that I did um, besides go get a job at, at Boston Productions was um, um, hook up with the local public access television station. And uh, this guy, James Hadcroft, um, just opened the door. You know, he looked at, at the education that I had and knew that I knew that I was what I was doing and said, here's the gear, do with it what you want. And so I did what everybody else does. I just started making movies, you mm-hmm. know. I made crazy little, you know, uh, documentaries. Um, I, I remember I made a, a, uh, a movie that I think still airs to this day up in, the New, up in Cape Cod. It's called Neawala Yippa, The Legend of Snake Pond. We lived on a on a pond called Snake Pond, and I used to tell my kids a story about the snake that lived in the pond, and and you know the people that died in the pond. You know, it's just things you tell your kids when, when yeah, you're younger, you know, because you know why tell them good, nice little cozy nursery rhymes when you can yeah, tell exactly. more stories. So, yeah. so anyway, uh, I basically created this documentary called Neawala Yippa, The Legend of Snake Pond. And I got a bunch of actors together and I said, okay, you are a marine biologist from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and you went scuba diving and you saw this 50-foot snake that lives in the pond. You are a Navy diver who's been deep down into the big hole where the snake lives. You're a mother who who's had to save her life, save her kid's life from the from the snake and all that. And we created this very cool little little um, thirty minute piece. Um, and there were lots of little clues in it, but what it turned out, um, what people don't know, is that Neawala Yippa is actually a Happy Halloween spelled backwards. So you know, <laughs> so what happened is is that they aired this thing the whole week on the local public access station. Uh, all over Cape Cod, um, on all the on three or four different public access stations, as I re, as I am told, the local police departments and um, uh, city officials got easily two three hundred phone calls. I can imagine so. It was my very own war of the world, <laughs> and uh, you know it, it took a while for people to catch on. You know that it was a total mockumentary but uh i'm you know i'm to this day i'm very proud of that little piece because it was a lot of fun you know we got a lot of local actors together i and you know i used the resources i had at my hand that's what you have to do yeah absolutely and and i'm a big proponent of that um uh so that was a little side trip i'm sorry so is is that online that mockumentary it is i'm sure somewhere and i will do my very best to get a link to you it's out there somewhere because um, i would love to see that that yeah. sounds amazing yeah yeah it was a, it, it's it's one of the first pieces i ever did i'm sure it looks like crap we shot it on uh uh super vhs i basically was the sound guy the camera guy the lighting guy the director the producer the editor 
Um, and uh, it's pretty much everything behind the camera. Yeah, yeah, it, and uh, you know, I I was supported by a, a bunch of really good actors who, you know, could improv. We'd know the script. There was no script to this thing. We just basically came up with this idea, and the idea was there's this big snake in the in the pond, and you know, they they went with it, and then I edited it, did, edited it, I cut it all together, <laughs> and. <laughs> And it came out pretty pretty well. So um, that's so, awesome. I, I'd love to see that. That sounds so cool. I, I will do my best to get a link to you. Um, I and, and you know through working at the public access TV stations and then working uh, at uh, Cape Cod Cablevision as net insertion tech, I had access to all this gear. So um, I basically said, okay, how can I make a little extra money on the side? And I started doing little side projects. You know little documentaries with, uh, um, you know, the local Museum of Natural History. And, you know, just uh, whatever I could make a buck for. I, I remember I, I did this video. This was back in, I want to say, um, seven, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure when it was, but the tall ships, you know, all the, the triple-masted schooners and all that, they were passing through Cape Cod Canal. And so uh, they, there were about 40 of them that came through the Cape Cod Canal. So we sat up on multi-camera positions all over the place and basically videotaped them going through the canal. And there's a video out there for sale somewhere called Gracefully They Sailed. And, it, and it's basically some old, old dude uh, narrating uh, and talking about these ships as they sail past them. It's really, really quite fascinating. If you're a pure tall ships fan, it's, it's really cool. So, yeah, that's, uh, that was one of those cool little projects that I got to be involved in. That is really cool. Uh, what, what are some other, uh, what would you consider unique type things? Because you, you mentioned in an email you have the only existing footage of a moving lighthouse. How so, exactly does that work? Well, so here's the deal. Um, as I became, uh, as longer I stayed at Cape Cod Cablevision as an insertion tech, it, you know, people rotate out of those jobs real quickly. I quickly moved into a producer's position, which actually gave me more access to more equipment. Um, I started meeting people working all over Cape Cod. Come to, I met up with a very good friend, uh, Greg O'Brien, who was a was writer. And um, at the time, there was a lighthouse uh, in Truro, Massachusetts, Wellfleet, Massachusetts, uh, called the Cape Cod Highland Light that was sitting precariously on the edge of a cliff. And uh, they were going to move this lighthouse. The plan was that they were going to move this lighthouse back 650 feet off of the cliff and basically save the light. The Truro Historical Society um, asked Greg if he would help them put together a documentary to um, document this whole move and and cover the historical facts of all this stuff. So through my association with Greg and the fact that I had a lot of gear available to me and people, uh, we, we covered the moving of this lighthouse from beginning to end. And uh, uh, basically, um, if you don't know, what, the way they move a lighthouse is they cut it off at the bottom 
And in this case, they they the keeper's house was connected to the lighthouse, mm-hmm. and so they so they disconnected the lighthouse and the oil house, which was right next to the lighthouse, and uh, sawed it off as foundation with with the great big sawzall, and then they used hydraulics, a system of of hydraulics, um, to lift the lighthouse up. Um, six feet into the air. And then they take railroad ties and they slid these great big railroad ties, you know, 20 or 30 of them, underneath the lighthouse. And then they use the hydraulic dra- jacks that are hooked up to a special system and they they drop them back down onto the railroad ties. Now, the railroad ties by this time are lubricated, um, and ironically enough, they use ivory soap to make them slick. Being The idea being that, one, ivory soap, when you put a lot of weight to it, it compacts, and two, it's biodegradable. So mm-hmm. if it rains, the, sun, the rain washes it away. So they have these um, hydraulic jacks now hooked up to the side, and they basically push the hydraulic or they push the um, the lighthouse out the extent of these these rails, these railroad ties, which I forget how long they are, maybe 20, 30 feet. But they do that maybe four feet at a time. They push out as far as these hydraulic jacks will go, and they have to unscrew, unscrew the jacks and then move the jacks and push them. And so the movement of this lighthouse is basically imperceptible. You you can't see it if you were standing right next to it. But and and the movement of this lighthouse happened over the course of 68 days. So one of the things that we did was was we set up a time-lapse camera um up on what I call the grassy knoll. Um the lighthouse is situated right in the middle of a um, golf course, and mm-hmm. it was kind of down in this little gully. So up on the hill um, w- was a perfect place for us to set up a 16 millimeter camera. And every time that lighthouse was moving, we would we would roll uh, roll on the on the move and take one frame every. I want to say it was one frame every 60 seconds. And because it took so long to do. We had to be out there. Somebody from my crew, either me or somebody else, had to be out there every day that they moved. And over the course of sixty-eight days, you can imagine that was quite a quite an undertaking. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so, at one point, we moved the camera up to the up to the turret of the lighthouse so that we could look down on the on the bottom of the. Uh, you know, down at the at what was going on with the with the guys pushing things all that seeing all the little ants move it was very very cool um you know i didn't make any money on that job but we we ultimately ended up creating a a movie called uh, uh save the light the the story of cape cod highland lighthouse um which the Toro historical society has used to raise funds to keep the lighthouse afloat and all that um, and you know, I got possession of the 16 millimeter film of the, of the lighthouse moving. So I have been fortunate enough to be able to make a little bit of money, not a lot, but I've probably made more money reselling that footage 
to shows like How Did They Do That uh, and other things like that, uh, you know, uh, the, this lighthouse. And it looks very, very cool if, if you've ever seen it. The lighthouse just kind of moving across the plane. We shot it on a very wide, you know, long lens. And, yeah. And it works out, worked out very, very well. So it was really cool. And the cool thing is, is that we then became the documentaries of lighthouses. And so the following summer, um, they moved to another lighthouse. The uh, it was Nosset Light in Orleans, Massachusetts. They did this a, a, a totally different way. They jacked this lighthouse up, put it on the back of a trailer, and literally drove it across the street, which had to go down an incline, I think a hundred hundred feet, and then back up another incline a hundred feet, and then plop it back down. Um, very amazing feat of engineering uh, that both of these jobs were managed by this guy named Pete Friesen, who is was, I should say, the uh, preeminent big house mover in the world. He, he was the guy whenever you needed anything big moved. He was a guy. So I got to meet a lot of interesting people. We did interviews with people um, about both of both of the lights and the history and and I learned more about lighthouses and their purpose in in life and you know I, I've claimed to those two lights as my own lighthouses. I can't go back to Cape Cod now without taking a drive out there to see them because they're my I, lights. Yeah, I, I can imagine so. I've, a great deal of my time was spent out there. So. But it was I, I bet it was worth it, though. It, it was absolutely worth it. I, I feel very, very connected. You know, it's a place that, that I love to, you know, will always call one of my many, many homes. Now, are, are those videos online as well? Those videos are available um, through the different historical societies, the Truro Wellfleet Historical Society and the uh, Nosset Light uh, Historical Society. They sell them. Uh, I think they sell them both at the Cape Cod National Seashore. My guess is that you could find them. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I tell people I've made a really good living not being famous. A lot of the videos that I've done over the course of my career um, either are are seen by very few people or they're very specialized type videos. You know, I mean... I'm probably a legend in the lighthouse. You know, there there are lighthouse freaks all over the world, you know, and they know my work, you know, um, which is very, very cool. But that's a very small niche market, you know. But, I mean, still, having yeah. a little niche in something is, is yeah, pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So you never know, they might throw a Steve Baker con. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath on that one. <laughs> but, yeah, so... I, the whole time I was working, uh, doing the lighthouse documentaries, I was also creating, uh, local commercials, regional commercials, sometimes even national commercials, um, for Cape Cod Cable Vision that then turned into Continental Cable Vision that ultimately ended up being AT&T. And I rose up through the ranks at AT&T, um, and eventually became uh, a manager in the southeastern region, a production manager, um, and uh, you know had a small production facility that I worked out of. I hired a lot of freelance guys. Ironically enough, um, there's there's a local guy here who is the production manager over at uh, at MediaCom, Dave Hiru. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know David. David worked for me 
as a freelance. Really? Uh, a couple of times, you know, uh, up in Massachusetts when he lived up there. And he was one of the first guys that I reached out to when I moved down here to Massachusetts. And, you know, he was at the time he was not the production manager but his the person who was in the job before him had hired me and then he's since hired me to do some freelance work for them uh it's a yeah. small world right yeah it, production is a very 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 small world yes, it it's, is. Am, it's amazing the people who you you meet along the way that you know were a pa and now are a producer you know, or in, in some cases, you know, like me, I was a producer for a long time and did a lot of really big jobs and, you know, back down and now I'm just, just a sound guy. <laughs> so, but. Yeah, people have this uh, assumption that the production world is just this big, you know, massive world, but it's, it's really not. It really isn't. I, I am always amazed at the people that I meet up with who I know. I mean, the story I told you earlier about my brother working on a TV show with the actress of a movie that I worked on. That, that I, to me is a great example of how small the production world is. It, it absolutely is. And, and I could, you know, there, I come across guys now, um, that, that, you know, were, were PAs on, on jobs that I was producing back in the day who are now, you know, lead cameramen and, and stuff like that. So it's very, it, you know, I, I try and put the word out that, you know, be careful how you, how you act because the people you pass on the way up are the people you're going to pass on the way down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you never know who you're going to be talking to. So you got to try and Try and be good to everybody, you know. Um, you that was know. one of the biggest tips I got when I first started getting into this line of work is just don't be a jerk. Yeah, I mean, I would go one step further and, and say don't be an asshole um, because people remember the assholes, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, you know, if you say you're going to deliver on something, deliver on it, you know. Um, even if it takes you forever to deliver on it, deliver on it. Tell them what's going on and i learned that when i was when i was producing commercials you know clients are very um you know they're very goal oriented and they pay a lot of money and it doesn't matter whether they're paying two hundred dollars or two thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars that commercial to the two hundred dollar guy is just as important as the twenty thousand dollar guy and so you know if you tell the guy that you're going to have your spot done his spot done, you know, by Friday of next week, you better have a darn good reason why it's not done. Even if it's not done, you should keep the client well informed. Yeah. That, I, that's, that's something that has become kind of a pet peeve of mine is lack of communication. Yeah. Well, I, one of the, one of the things that happened as a producer for me was that I learned, <clears throat> I quickly became the guy who could handle the difficult clients because, you know, if anything, I'm over communicative, you know, mm -hmm. with people and I'm able to smooth over the rough, rough edges and take a guy that nobody else can work with and basically work with them. And so, you know, um, I can, I could tell you some horror stories, uh, about it, this furniture guy that I used to work with in Massachusetts, uh, who nobody, nobody worked, nobody could work with, but, 
once I started being his producer, he then asked for me. And I put him through the paces. I mean, I can remember we were doing this kind of, we were doing, we used to do crazy stuff. He had this Walter Mitty complex. And, and I would put him in crazy situations where he'd be a hockey player one week or he'd be a basketball player one week. And, and, and one time he cracked his knee open trying to do a slam dunk, 27 wow. stitches in the middle of a shoot. You know, and then the next week I had him, you know, out singing. He was singing this stupid song with a 10-piece band behind him, you know. So so uh, having good client skills, being able to finesse them, you know, and manage them and being able to manage a lot of things. Uh, I, and I think that's the one thing that I learned when I was working as a producer in, in uh, cable production is that... Uh, uh, or in, in local and regional spot production is multitasking mm -hmm. because I, I can remember there were times when I had 20, 30 different projects going at any given time. You know, some would be in post-production, some would be in pre-production, some would be, you know, I'd be shooting one day and editing the next day and writing the next day. And, you know, it, sometimes it, my mind would get a little frazzled because I'd forget where I am, you know, if it's, Tuesday, I must be in, in Boston, you know, because I'd be traveling all over southeastern New England doing doing stuff for all kinds of different clients. And, you know, I was known for for kind of pushing the envelope a little bit uh, with with my spots. I, I, I kind of... It's good to do that, though. Well, you know what? I wear it as a badge of honor. I've had at least three spots that were aired and then taken off the air because of questionable content. And, and you know... Um, I, I thought they were funny and the client went for it. And when we put them on the air, I mean, well, one, one in particular that I'm thinking of was for, uh, this was one of the very first online newspapers. It's called Cape Cod, uh, online, I think is what it was. And it, we, the whole concept of the commercial was reading your newspaper in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my idea was, well, where does everybody read the newspaper? Where do you read the newspaper? Online. On, no, no, no. I went back in the day. Oh. You're sitting at the table mm -hmm. or sitting in the bathroom. Yep. So since this was an online deal, basically we did this funny little thing where it started at the, at the time it was all dial up, if you can remember. So that we followed, we did this kind of camera, this follow of this cable all through the house, and ultimately it ended up with this guy who was sitting on the on the toilet with reading his Cape Cod Journal online newspaper in the in the bathroom. I don't know why people felt that was offensive, but well, people uh, are way too offend, uh, uh, easily offended. No, it it was definitely pushing pushing the boundaries. I think it's funny. Bit. Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, we did we did a lot of lot of stuff. I, I'm very proud. I I think I did the the first, and this was very early on the in the animation period. I did the very first fully animated spot um, in all of New England. Oh um, wow! For a company called Seafood Sam's, and we hired this 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 group out of uh, Rhode Island who who was known for doing 3D animation. And, you know, so th we did this fully animated spot. I, I hired a bunch of uh, 
actors to voice it. And to this day, it holds up. I mean, it's, you know, if you look at it compared to some of the 3D animation now, it's it's a little blocky here and there. But for the most part, you know, it sounds good. It looks good. It has a great story, you know. And I think we pulled it off, you know. Somewhere in the archive, somewhere. And what what time frame was that made? This was back in nineteen, probably ninety five. Oh, okay. Yeah, ninety five between ninety five and and two thousand. Um, so from about nineteen ninety five to about two thousand and three, I was working, you know, doing spots, and I was also doing a lot of freelance stuff on the side. I worked. I work for a lot of different people. I, um, one of my favorite jobs, favorite clients to this day is that I work with a, uh, with the world's only blind crew chief in all of motorsports. There's a guy named Jay Blake who had a, uh, forklift tire blow up in his face. And instead of giving up on life, he decided to go drag racing. Um, and another little funny story here. So, um, so I had done a TV commercial for his, for the company that he worked for before he had his accident, um, and it was a Michelin tire company. And you know, Jay was a very you know outgoing guy, and you know, normal, just just a worker in the shop. But he was my model for the day, so I spent a lot of time with him. Fast forward four or five years later, I get a phone call from from this guy. Uh, he says, "I don't know if you remember me, but uh, this is Jay Blake and." And you did a commercial for me with Meineke uh, Motors, and it was all all about tires and stuff like that. And I was wondering if you could come over. I've got this new nonprofit organization I'm starting up, and I'd really love to meet with you. So it was, a, I remember distinctly, it was a, a bright fall day in New England. I went over to his house. It's 3 o'clock. We go in. He meets me at the door. I shake his hand. We go into his house, and... And we're sitting there talking. He's telling me about this dream that he has about how he he wants to uh, start this organization called Follow Dream and go talk to kids about the power of positive thinking, self determination, and teamwork through motorsports. And how he he's he and his brother are campaigning at the time. It was an alcohol powered dragster, and they're racing all over the country. And would you come work with us and videotape things and and help me create some marketing videos so that we can get this thing off the ground? And I'm loving this guy. You know, I love his energy. I, I'm really enjoying working with him. And we're talking. It's getting darker and darker and darker. And we're talking. And he's walking around the house like there's nothing, nothing going on. And I'm trying to take notes. Finally, it's about 7 o'clock. And it's pitch black in the room. And I said, Jay, I said, look, do you mind if I turn on a light? He says, oh, I didn't tell you, did I? I said, tell me what, Jay? He says, I'm blind. What? Yeah. So this forklift blew up in his face. He's totally blind. And he's walking around in his house talking like, about like nothing's like nothing. different. And and you know, it was at that point that I was totally sold on the guy. And I've been working I with, can imagine so. I've been working with him for for since since then, for going on 17, 18 years now. He campaigns all over the country. He's now in the alcohol powered um funny cars. Um he's number four number seven in in the country right now um and uh you know i have been 
to Las Vegas with him, you know, been to races all over the country with him and, and shot speaking engagements where he spoke to, you know, a thousand military guys and in one room. And, you know, it's just an amazingly, amazingly uh, inspirational. That's inspirational. Yeah, 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 it is. And, you know, I have Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease can be pretty debilitating at times. It's an inflammatory bowel disease, you know. It's not something that that I would wish on my worst enemy. But, you know, when I'm having a bad day or I'm not feeling well, I think about Jay, you know, and the things that he's gone through, you know. And that is where part one of this conversation will end. Be sure to come back next week for part two of my conversation with Steve Baker. But until then, you can check out past episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can also follow me on social media, like me on Facebook. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can follow the show on Twitter at DDE underscore podcast. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Derek underscore diamond. And that does it for this week. So enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back next Thursday.